You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I haven't seen you since we were kids. It seems like ages since I laid eyes on you. What have you been doing with your life? I see you're trying to be funny because it seems like we just we just did this a couple days ago, which that- we did because of your scheduling error. And now we're here doing it a day early on Sunday, also because of Chad Dundas's scheduling foibles, let's say. Foibles, we're going to call them now. Good a word as any. Hey. What would you call them? I, I, I'm taking care of my health. I got a doctor appointment tomorrow. Go make sure I'm in tip-top shape so that the co-main event podcast can go on and on into infinity. What uh, what anti-aging clinic is this doctor appointment at exactly? <laughs> this is going to be down. It's in a strip mall. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's right next to a bar called Jack's Bait Shack. And on the other side, uh, a nail salon. All right. You can, I, you can get pedicure, manicure. I feel like you could you could probably knock out a bunch of errands while you're down there. You know, people are always saying they want us to do more than one podcast a week. Uh, and you, you show up now to record this on Sunday right after we just recorded one a couple of days ago. It's like a like a uh, a little preview of how that would be. I don't like it. No. I don't like having you here. No. I don't think anybody likes it. We just just got the cleaners to come in and get the funk, get your funk out of the out of the furniture yesterday and now you're here again yeah just funking it right up funking it up brought the funk with me i guess we should get started with our podcast sure why not well we have music this week ben it comes from listener john collins and his solo music music project shade ill or shadil so are you saying you do not know well it's one word shade ill just like it sounds. But then, you know, like Sade, that's spelled S-A-D-E, right? With the uh-huh. accent mark on Are there the any e. accent marks here? No, it just says Shadeel, but it could also be Shadil, right? Let's go with that. That's more interesting. All right. Shadil writes, I'm a Scottish lad living on Vancouver Island. I wrote all the songs, play all the instruments, and sing it all with my own pipes. I don't know what you would call my style, some sort of dark dream thingy? I like that. You know what it is? I listened to it, obviously, already, because so, we could put it in the podcast. Uh, sex music. Oh, yeah. This nice is like Scottish sex music? This is like some shit where like, if you were in high school and you had those glow-in-the-dark stars on your ceiling, uh-huh. you would wait till your lady friend had had a couple of soda pops and then be like, hey, do you want to come in my, in my room and see the glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling? Bring her in there, flip the lights off. Throw Shadil. A little bit of Shadil. Shadil on the CD player. Yeah. And uh, next thing you know, second base. Yeah. At least. There you go. And before you know it, you're a teenage father. Guaranteed second base. Wonderful. Uh, if you like what you hear from Shade Ill, you can find more of his stuff at uh, his SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Shadil or Shade Ill. God damn it. This is driving me crazy. Maybe he, I bet he'll write back. Let us know. Uh, 
the proper pronunciation. Or we'll be dead to him after he hears this. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say Shade Ill is probably right. Uh, three rounds, as usual, this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, I suspect the game plan for Ryan LaFlair in his first UFC main event was not to make Damian Maya look like Dan Gable, but that's sort of how it turned out. And in round number two, if Ben Folks's conspiracy theory on Josh Koscheck turns out to be correct, well, he certainly picked an unflattering way to punch his ticket over to Bellator. And in round number three, Ronda Rousey actually announced Misha Tate's next fight at a press conference last week, proving that she not only is one of the most devastating fighters in the world, but she's also way more of a functioning UFC executive than Chuck Liddell. All that plus are you fucking kidding me just and just saying stuff but right now like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from Jason in Denver. He writes, I'll tell you why Frank Mir looked like he didn't want to be in that picture with Chechen President Ramzan Kadyrov. Mir probably Googled Ramzan on his his way to the Chechen Republic. In 2011, Hillary Swank was shamed by human rights organizations for being paid to attend Ramzan's birthday shindig. Take a look at Ramzan's wiki page. If a third of that shit is true, he's a rapey, murderous tyrant. I know Frank Mir doesn't want a real job, but this can't help the UFC's current image problem. I do my best to ignore stupid shit fighters say, but this is hard for me to overlook. How do you feel about current UFC champs dancing for brutal dictators? <laughs> Are fighters who do this bigger whores than the MMA media? Wow. So touching a lot of bases, yeah. Jason from Denver does. J- Jason from Denver can overlook a lot of things that fighters say and do. But the minute you pal around with the guy described in a recent New York Times article as the strong man uh, in charge of Chechnya, that's where he draws the line. He'll come at you spitting hot fire. That's right. So, yeah, this New York Times article came out. We wrote about it actually in the Breakfast of Champions last Friday. Uh, So if you missed that, you might want to go sign up for the BOC newsletter because – it rules. Yes. Uh, but it was this, this expose on the Chechen president was number one, not pretty. And number two, awkwardly timed yeah. for Chris Weidman, Frank Mir, and Fabrizio Verdum, who just went over to the MMA event in Chechnya, where the New York Times was present, actually. Right. Like, do you think what I thought when I read the story about Ramzan Kadyrov was, do you think that those guys were uh, relieved that their names were not in it? Because it was, didn't, wasn't mentioned that they were there. And it could have been like that could have been an interesting note in the story because they do part of the story uh, talks about him with uh, a biker gang. I believe the translation of their name was the Night Wolves. The Night Wolves, which uh, doesn't make them sound friendly. No. And they were all at this local MMA event, which, uh, you know, Weidman and uh, Fabrizio Verdum and Frank Mir were all kind of there palling around with the, the Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the, the strong man in charge of Chechnya. So it could have very easily been a, a fun note for the New York Times to throw in there, like, oh, by the way, this UFC champion was there uh, hanging out with him. And then imagine Chris Weidman comes back to New York just in time to see the hometown paper has linked him with a murderous tyrant. Uh, that might have been kind of a kind of bad PR for him. Yeah, we were. Uh, do you think they knew? I guess is the question. Like, you know, you're not dealing with the most politically intuned uh, subset of the population here with mixed martial arts fighters. Uh, do you th- do you think that they were aware of the Chechen president's uh, reputation, or do you think like they just knew that some foreign guy was going to pay him a bunch of money to go to this MMA event, which 
you know, probably seems like a pretty good deal for them. Uh, or do you think that they were like aware? Do you think that they, as Jason from Denver said, that they Googled this guy before they went? Uh, I would probably lean toward no, that they did not do that, a whole lot of research. That would be my guess, too. Uh, but at the same time, like, you could argue that that in itself is the problem that, you know, you – I would think – it's one thing if, it's, if somebody's like, hey, uh, do you want to go to uh, France? They're they're going to pay you to go to France and go to some local MMA event and hang out in France. And yes, I like, do. You'd Who's, be like, okay. Wait, who, is this a real offer? Or <laughs> No, this is just part of your example? Who would pay you to do anything except stay home? <laughs> Nothing. We do Who are this for pay, free. Pay you not to go to their things, uh, but you're like, okay, fine. Uh, I'll go to France. That's but if somebody says like Chechnya, that's where I would be like, all right, just for my own personal safety, I'm gonna maybe see what the situation is in Chechnya. Yeah, see, they, Chris Weidman doesn't know. He just thinks Chechnya is a country, another country of that he's never heard of, like Barbados or <laughs> Madagascar. All right, fine, you know, and. I don't know. The, the thing about the, the New York Times article was I was reading it and I, I've, I've heard this dude's name before, but I had never really read any like kind of in-depth uh, reporting. And the occasion for this report was him being linked to the assassination of uh, Boris Nemtsov. The, right. the Which has been in the news. That's been, that's big been time pretty news. big news. Yeah, big, big time uh, news item. And he's linked to that and apparently linked to a bunch of other like similar type uh, killings of rivals and critics and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, you got the UFC fighters over there doing funny dances with them and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it feels like it's one of those things. That, like, I have that same feeling I had about TRT where I keep waiting for the outside world to figure out what we're doing over in the MMA and be like, holy shit, what the hell's wrong with you guys? Because if, right. like, A-Rod had been over there hanging out with this Yeah, dude, he would have been in the story. <laughs> that's right. Like, you know, and so, like, a part of me is just like, I guess I, we, sh we should count ourselves lucky that MMA is a niche enough sport or, like, small time enough that, like, it fails to to make the story about the, the murderous uh, Chechen strongman that he had, like, a UFC champion come party with him. I guess that's a good thing for us. Yeah, sometimes it's good that we just don't rate. Yeah. But some, like, junior copy editor needed to save a couple inches for the print version so she took that out and good good news for us i yeah. guess i don't know um well let's let's address jason from denver's actual question though uh does this hurt the the ufc's uh what did he say uh image problem cuz i'm i'm going to say not really like as we just pointed out like they i mean if anyone had noticed and would had made a bigger deal out of this then uh then I would say maybe yes, but like there hasn't even been that much attention paid to this by the niche MMA media, really. Like right. there was one article on Bloody Elbow and we talked about it on this show, but other than that, like I haven't really seen that much about it. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I mean, maybe unfairly so, we're just a willing to uh, consider it a, to whatever extent that it is a problem, like a sin of ignorance. Like, you know, for some reason, when you when I hear like, oh, Hillary Swank got uh got, took some shit for going over there and and being paid to to party with these people, like I don't even know much about Hillary Swank, but I'm like, well, she should know better. But like, <laughs> come on, Weidman and Mir and and Fabricio Verdum, they're just trying to party and get get paid a little, man. It is gonna make a fun question to ask Chris Weidman though the next time anyone talks to him, right? Because interviewing Chris Weidman is kind of a chore to begin with. You bring like 15 questions, it takes three minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, so tossing in a question about did he know that this this guy had this reputation before he went over there to to do the traditional dance, uh, 
be, that's a fun little question. Just put a different spin on the next Chris Weidman interview. Yeah, or or just to set him up with one where you say like, so during your time in Chechnya, um, did you witness what you would say is a lot of murders or just a reasonable amount of murders? And he'd be like, same as Jersey, man. <laughs> He's from. Okay, I get what you're saying. Fine. Uh, are you ready to concede my point yet that uh, world leaders showing up at local MMA events in track pants and sitting in the front row with a bunch of uh, fighters is a little bit of a weird look? Or are you still going to put me on blast and like author a bizarre, uh, like like uh, bizarre attack on amateurism, like you did last time? I don't. First of all, I don't think that was a bizarre attack on amateurism. Uh, that's how I remember it. I think, and I, I think that's how the listeners remember it. I mean, I, I can see how. And this one really kind of does work against my point that I was trying to make <laughs> when I said that it wasn't weird. This is inconvenient timing for me as well. Uh, I don't think there should be anything weird about like if, you know, if, if, we, if we decide like, hey, world leaders can be into sports and like super into sports and, you know, we see them out at these sporting events and it's a big photo op, then fine. They could be into MMA as much as they could be into anything else. Like I think it's less weird to be into professional prize fighting than it is to be super into this like exploitative college basketball thing. Well, that's because you are also a weirdo. Saying. Maybe it's the uh, – So excited to watch other the, people's kids. The, in, the environment of the uh, – like, I wouldn't think it was that weird if, like, a world leader showed up at the UFC, but, like, showing up at a weird, like, off-brand local MMA show. Well, that's and then it's in Chechnya, so I understand why he would be there. But it's kind of like it was weird when Vladimir Putin showed up at that Bodog event that was, like, uh, wherever it was in Russia, and, like, he was sitting in the front row with the Emelianenko brothers. It's weird, man. Well, it wasn't like he was choosing between Bodog and, like, UFC Moscow. Like, you know, you go to what's around, Chad. The, the same way, the same way that you and I have been to probably more sport fight events uh, than we can reasonably justify. You go to what you can actually get in the car and drive to. Right. We're not world leaders. Just a couple of guys doing a yet. podcast. We're not world leaders yet. Next question comes from Jen Dennis Johansson. He writes, so how mad should Drew Dober be? Super mad, bro. Pretty mad, I would say. Yeah. Really fucking mad. Um, this was on the prelims of, of Fight Night 62 uh, Saturday night. I didn't get to watch this because it's on the Fox Sports 2, which I do not get, but I watched the uh, video of it afterward. <laughs> Listen to this guy. Uh, and it seemed kind of indefensible. Although, you know what is fun for me is logging into my Twitter every week when the main card of a UFC event starts because almost invariably everyone is already mad about something yeah. that has already happened. I get to get to like log on after the fact and witness the after the aftermath, like just the rage, the simmering rage of the Twitter sphere of talking about some Brazilian ref I've never heard of before and his, what he did, what this bastard did <laughs> on the prelims. You know, speaking of like of how mad Drew Dober should be. Um, I don't know if you saw any of his reaction and his remarks in the post fight interview. I was kind of surprised that he did not seem more angry. Like he was, he was handling it well, I thought, because like he seemed to have like some reasonable indignation right after it happened when he real like first of all he didn't even realize that the guy was trying to stop the fight at first because why would you uh and then when it seemed like he was having it explained to him he seemed really mad but then by the time they got the the microphone in his face he was pretty like reasonable about it he was just like okay i'll do a rematch if you guys want to see that um there's no reason i would have tapped there so you know like he he did not go as crazy as I think that a lot of people might have gone in a situation where you just had a loss put on your record and the UFC paid him his his win bonus money. Uh, but you know we've talked about this before. You know how hard it is to go back and tell like an athletic commission like, hey, wait a minute, that loss shouldn't be on my record. Yeah, That's gonna probably going to stay there. 
And that's bullshit, man, because there's just absolutely no reason to stop the fight from there. Yeah, maybe it'll turn out to be a different situation because this happened in Brazil. So I don't know about the I don't know if the liability will be quite the same as a, a an athletic commission in the states. Like because one of the reasons that athletic commissions in the United States are loath to admit when they've done wrong is that they don't want anyone to sue them. Right. Like because if they go back and change the the outcome of your fight from a loss to a no contest or whatever that in and of itself could be viewed as them admitting that they fucked up right so they don't want to do that that's why one of the reasons why it's so hard to like retroactively change the outcome of a fight i wonder if in brazil uh where the athletic commission is a little bit more of a fledgling affair and it seems to have a little bit closer ties with the actual fight company uh and they probably wouldn't have to worry about drew dober suing them i would think i don't know maybe he would but like i don't know maybe it'll be a different deal because uh you're dealing with sort of a, a like a an international organization rather than like the california state athletic commission yeah well and i mean Given his reaction, I don't think he's of a mind Doesn't to sue seem them. Like the if, suing kind, yeah, especially if they do the right thing and, and give him a no contest on that one. It did make me wonder though, because we've talked before about how MMA is the nature of the sport is such that you make one call as a referee and you could be completely fucking everything up. It's not like you know you missed a call at third base in the fourth inning, but the game goes on. You know, it's it has a huge direct impact, and as soon as you do anything, like you've altered the fight itself. It made me wonder, like, it, should we have some sort of, like, instant replay effect? Like, at what point do we admit that, like, okay, admitting that you stepped in and you kind of fucked up the fight and then doing whatever seems like the, the most uh, or the least damaging way to restart the fight would still be the the lesser of two evils rather than just saying, like, nope, absolute uh, uh, fight ender. As soon as the referee puts his hands on somebody, that's it. Cannot be reversed. Uh, move on. Like, aren't we just fucking it up more that way than we would be if we allowed for the referee to admit some error and restart the fight? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we've talked a lot before about the amount of power that's conceded to the referee in a mixed martial arts fight and how, you know, it's a ton uh, and that's it's a, a lot of responsibility. And I would argue maybe the toughest officiating job in all of sports, because like you were saying, you're called upon to make this split section split second judgment call. And like that ends the whole athletic contest. Like it's over after that happens. And right now, like you said, there's no uh, way to go back and like rectify it. If you, if you made a mistake and it's, you know, it's like you have a play at the plate in the bottom of the ninth inning at any time, during the the thing and like it, you don't get to get ready for it either like no. if you're a football referee and you're like okay last play of the game one <laughs> one team's up by two this team's gonna kick a field goal i should probably pay attention like you don't get that in mixed martial arts i mean the dude get this dude gets stuck in a guillotine so you gotta not pay even, close attention but like but it can happen like at any time tight guillotine like he gets stuck in a guillotine uh he's in half guard he's off to the proper side to defend and you can see that he's not even really worried like he's not there's no way you're going to choke the guy from there. Yeah. Uh, well, when one of the things, like maybe the one of the strangest things that we ask the referee to do is to tell when a guy has been choked unconscious or not, right? Like I, I often wonder that, like guys get stuck uh, in uh, in in chokes all the time. Like the first fight on the main card where the, the guy got the world's longest flying triangle, where he like right. flying triangle choked the guy, but it took like two minutes for him to get the, get the tap out. You know, when you have a guy stuck in a choke for a really long time, like one of the referee's duties is to determine whether the other guy is unconscious. And that kind of seems like what that ref thought. 
that like he was going to grab his arm yeah. to see if he was unconscious or he thought he was unconscious. It didn't seem like he thought he tapped out. It, it seemed like he thought he got choked out. Uh, and it just happened to be the world's worst timing that the guy was also at that exact moment worming out of the guillotine choke. Uh, so that's a weird thing, I think, to ask the referee to do, although I don't, I don't know how else you would do it. But to circle back to your point about whether or not there should be a way to like retroactively go back and, and clear it up if a referee has made a mistake and restart the fight, I would say in theory, yeah, absolutely. In practice, I think you get into a real sticky situation there. You would have to craft the rule pretty carefully you would you would but yeah i mean i, I agree with you that it does create a a, a a problematic area where you don't want it to turn out like where everybody regards results on fight night as preliminary findings like you don't want to be constantly relitigating this stuff at the same time though by just going like the same thing we did with that uh the eye poke uh into choke win that uriah faber had where you're just like oh no nah, referee didn't see it you're screwed i mean i don't feel like that's serving fairness in the sport either all right, next question comes from Kevin B. He writes, Aldo versus Mendez, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, Joanna Yenjechik versus Claudia That's not Gidea. what it says. That's not, not gonna, what a question says. It says Joanna Champion. That's right, it does. But we're not saying that. Because Kevin B. knows what's up. We're boycotting that. That's a dumb thing to say. I'm giving you a pound right now, Kevin B. Uh, now, Amanda Nunez, uh, is anyone else noticing a trend? I understand fighters are in quote-unquote full kill mode while going, in, going for the finish, but this whole I didn't hear the bell or I didn't feel the ref pulling me up thing hasn't seemed to be a problem until recently discuss <laughs> well these are all like different scenarios really different scenarios which i think kind of brings us back to the to the point we were talked a lot about in the previous answer like you ask these guys these men and women who are mixed martial arts referees to have us and it's super hard job and you give them a ton of power and you they also have to uh administrate an extremely diverse set of circumstances i guess you would say like shit can go wrong so many different ways yeah and like and we can find fighters can find new ways to make it go wrong like like constantly like it's just infinite but uh like okay you look at uh, differences and like we're talking about you know after the bell violence kind of stuff i mean the john jones versus daniel cormier thing is very different than uh you know say the amanda noons on on shana basler thing there's just completely different circumstances and so some of those you can understand how you're going hard you're going hard and especially if it's a loud arena maybe you don't always hear the bell maybe you don't feel the ref pulling you off like especially with amanda Nunes, i think that was a a really understandable one because she kicks Shayna baszler in the leg baszler goes down you know that's not usually a fight ender but it is an opportunity uh for the fighter on the attack there so she's kind of pouring it on and yeah might not totally realize that the ref is trying to pull her off at first yeah Um, so fine we just talked a lot about like maybe sounding a little sympathetic toward the refs uh i am going to lodge this criticism here i thought it seemed like kind of a lackadaisical stoppage from mario yamasaki at first and like maybe that was because he didn't expect amanda nunez to keep going but it was sort of like he just kind of stepped in there and was like stop 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 put his hands on her she didn't really stop and then he had to be do the full grab tackle pull you off thing uh so i don't know maybe if he would have stepped in a little bit more vehemently uh we wouldn't have had that that problem and it didn't didn't seem uh egregious to me either as watching it especially since like you said Shayna baszler looked like she kind of injured her leg but like you don't know like you could try to do a walk off there if you're amanda nunez but like Maybe it doesn't work. Then yeah. you get in that awkward situation where you got to come down off the cage and finish the fight. <laughs> no one likes to do that. Yeah, no. Best to, to 
pour it on when you get the chance. But then, you know, it's a completely different situation when you're pumped about your comeback win and you kick the guy in the ass uh, <laughs> as you're getting up. Like, right. you know what you're doing there. And he admitted that he knew what he was doing and that it was, you know, he was caught up in the moment and it was wrong and he apologized immediately. Uh, and I felt like that one was, okay, he realized that he had fucked up. He apologized right away for fucking up. It wasn't like, you know, he soccer kicked the dude in the face. It was no real actual harm done. It was not cool. It was not a cool thing to do. And he acknowledged that and, and apologized for it. And so, okay, I'm fine with that. But I also, I think it's weird how, you know, the UFC can say in a situation like that, like, yeah, okay, we understand. He shouldn't have done that, but he apologized for it. We're going to let it go. No no punishment and everything. And yet when Jason High, who just been like kind of concussed uh, in a, a TKO stoppage, gets up and gives the ref like this kind of woozy shove, blacklisted. That makes no sense to me. Right. And it's, hey, man, maybe we have a situation where Amanda Nunez just doesn't know when to say when, right? Because then her post-fight interview was also like a little bit excessive. Like it seemed <laughs> like maybe we needed to do the thing at the Oscars where you start playing the music and like just play them off the stage because – she was going to thank everyone in the arena yeah. if you gave her the chance. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, you're saying it's a character issue. <laughs> Could be. I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. Uh, last question this week comes from Tyler Cavell. He writes, so the UFC is going to do close to 50 fight cards this year, but at least they really know how to make a lot of them seem long as fuck. Discuss. Uh, yeah, this was a long event on the the Saturday night UFC fight night 62. And like I said, I didn't even watch the prelim. So I just stuck around for the three hour, uh, what a six fight main card or yeah. whatever. 12 fights altogether. Uh, and it, this seems like a Fox thing, right? Like this seems like another thing that has changed that we couldn't necessarily have forecast, but indeed like kind of makes events less interesting and appealing to watch. Uh, because Fox, I assume because they want to fill the time slot and maybe show all the advertising that they've sold. I don't know if that's that's just my guess. But, like, they will, you know, even if fights are ending quickly like a lot did on this card, they're not afraid to kick it back to the desk no. to talk to Karen Bryan and Brian Stan and uh, uh, Dominic Cruz for 15 minutes, even though, man, we could get out of here in an hour and a half if we really got the lead out. Yeah, yeah well, and, you know, it always seems to me like such a disservice to the – like the main event or like the, the co-headliners basically because it's the stuff you really want people to see, right? And it's the stuff you put on latest at night and ask people to sit through the most bullshit to get to. Uh, so, you know, you you have this main card that starts at 10 p.m. Eastern and, you know, what was it like? Little after 11, you know, starts at, at 8 p.m. in the, the one true time zone and it's a little after 11 by the time we wrap up, right? Like... This, you know, you know, you have a, a potential five rounder in the main event. So maybe like let's get there a little with a little brisker of a pace so that we're not just totally fed up with this shit by the time we get there. And you're right. There, there do seem to be some logistical issues with making sure that all happens the way you want it to. Um, but especially I think like, you know, we talk sometimes about how maybe we get a different view of how people actually watch this sport. Like we think of it differently since we have to kind of cover it live. So we watch them all live. And every once in a while when, uh, you know, we have the weekend off or something, we get to watch it through the magic of DVR just like other people. And I wonder if, if they don't really notice because they're just skipping through a lot of that stuff. But then I think at the, at the same time, I see people and I know I've done this before where if you do DVR an event and you kind of sometimes can't help but catch some of the spoilers, you at least catch enough that, that tells you what fights are worth watching and what ones aren't. And so it makes the entire viewing experience really different. 
And I don't know if that's the best thing for when you got these main eventers and they you, people hear afterwards like, yeah, it was a five rounder and it wasn't that spectacular or anything. Like then you have people just skipping a lot of your right, shit. Right. Especially in a show like this, especially where you had some injuries and you had to uh, change the main event uh, and ended up with Ryan LaFlair against Damian Maya. This seemed like one, like if you weren't being paid to watch it, um, you must have just been real bored on Saturday to watch this thing. Or you were, as, as Chad Dundas would say, a shit-eating wild man for this MMA That's stuff. That's true, yeah. Uh, RE, the UFC's schedule, though, uh, we're going to find out here pretty pretty quick, like, in the next few months, whether or not 2015 is going to be the bounce-back year for the UFC that it kind of needs it to be. The, whether the time is now? Whether the time is now and whether you are being welcomed to the show. Uh, because this shit is cray. <laughs> cray? Yeah. Here's how it goes. This is just April. April 4th, April 11th, April 18th, April 25th, May 11th, May 15th, May 23rd, May 30th. I'll skip June, but July is fucking crazy as shit. This is, there's, this is like one and a half weeks in July. There's a show on July 11th. There's a show on July 12th. There's a show on July 15th. There's a show on July 18th. Then I think you might get a weekend off and then they hit you with July 25th. So like basically every week between the beginning of April and the start of October, there is a UFC event and you're going to get some good ones. If it all hangs together, John Jones, uh, Anthony Johnson is in this Frankie Edgar, Uriah Faber, Daniel Cormier, Ryan Bader, uh, Kane Velasquez, Fabricio Verdum, Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor. And then, uh, August 1st round Ronda Rousey versus Betch Cohia. Is that right? UFC 190. Yes. Uh, so they got a lot of really important fights coming up. And, and, you know, as long as this schedule hangs together, I think it might be a really kind of an awesome run through the, the summer and into the early fall. Uh, knock on wood, I guess I feel a little bit like a sucker for continuing to think that that could be the case since, <laughs> since we said the same damn thing at the start of this year. And then Anderson Silva tested positive for steroids and John Jones had to check into rehab. But like basically you're looking at a situation where there's a UFC show damn near every weekend between April and October. Yeah. So, like, if you're a fight fan, just tell anybody in your life, like, don't you dare try to have a fucking wedding or a birthday party or some shit on a Saturday night this summer because I won't be there. Yeah. Don't try to go having a baby at the beginning of June. Oh, no. Yeah. I already screwed that one up. Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, like we said before, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That catches you up on all the news and notes from Monday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, just get you up to date with the MMA headlines in kind of a funny way. You'll like it. Sign up for it. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, if I had to guess, I'd say that Ryan LaFlair's first foray into being a UFC main eventer has probably already come and gone. Uh, Saturday night in the headline attraction of UFC Fight Night 62, things didn't go totally as planned for Ryan LaFlair against Damian Maya. Uh, 
it seemed early on that he was going to maybe be able to come out and work some of his strikes and maybe have a chance in this fight. But he just could not stop Damian Maya from taking him down. Uh, and for the most part, couldn't get, get up once he got there. And I guess as an aside, I would say the face that he made while he was on the bottom did not help his cause much because he looked like anyone, I guess, who wound up underneath Damian Maya would look terrified and uncomfortable. Yes. Well, and I was really surprised that, you know, I'm not surprised that once down on his back against Demian Maya that he was unable to stop Maya from, you know, progressing to mount and kind of staying there for extended periods of time. That would have been what I would have expected. What I did not expect was that he would have so much trouble stopping Demian Maya from taking him down. Yeah, that, and I don't know if it was a situation where this was just, you know, Damian Maya fighting a guy that's kind of not at his level at this stage in their respective careers. And maybe I am just guilty of not having paid attention to what Damian Maya's been up to very recently. But, like, have these slick-ass double-leg takedowns always been there? Because while he was doing this last night, I was like, Jesus, I didn't know Damian Maya had these takedowns. You know, I don't think he always did. I think earlier in his career, back when he was a middleweight, uh, he used to actually had a lot of success as like kind of like a guard puller, even like a half guard puller, uh, and would just kind of go to work from there. And then that's usually the the forte of a guy who does not regard himself as a as a takedown whiz. But I don't know, man. I mean, uh, to me, I, when I was watching this fight, I was remembering the time briefly where uh, Demian Maya went through that progression that a lot of good ground fighters go through, where they sharpen up their boxing skills or something, and then fall in love with it, and oh, then God. spend like three fights thinking that they just want to stand and bang, bro. Don't remind me. Every time that comes up, I think about Matt Hughes doing that thing where he would cross his, he would do the like thought he was a boxer and he would do this boxing stance, but he would like keep crossing his hands in front of his face, and I'd just sit at home and be like, no, don't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, it really just. Watching Demian Maia work now, I realize that I might be more into it just by being a jiu-jitsu mark on a total homer for jiu-jitsu fighters. But uh, even when, you know, he's just kind of doing the same thing round after round, I'm into it just because I can appreciate, like, how tough it is to do that and how good he is at doing that stuff and how, you know, he has some flashy stuff in his game. But it's really, it's not like it's built around a lot of... Uh, bells and whistles. It's really simple stuff that he does really, really well, and there's just not a whole lot of openings for anybody else to do anything. And so when you get stuck on the bottom amount there, and he's kind of peppering you with punches to the face, you really don't have many good choices. You know, it's kind of like you can sell out for for certain escapes and then give him openings uh, for submissions, or you can kind of defend against the submissions and stay there. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of great choices to make there with Demian Mai on top of you. Yeah, well, I guess traditionally, uh, I'll ask you this, given your self-proclaimed status as a jiu-jitsu mark, like the the traditional Achilles heel of the jiu-jitsu fighter is not having great takedowns, right? Even if you're a whiz on the ground, you got to be able to get the fight there. And like, that's the kind of thing that separates the modern day jiu-jitsu artist, like say a Jacare Souza from like, you know, Hoist Gracie or something like Hoist Gracie didn't necessarily have... Uh, like takedowns that would blow you off your feet. He what kinda... are you talking about? He did that thing where he would like act like he was going to kick your knee, and then he would come in like with his hands all up, like he was a boxing kangaroo. Uh, come on, and man! Then he would get you in an awkward clinch <laughs> and like use his pajamas to pull you down to the ground, right? And but like then you now you've got these guys like Jacare Souza, who's like kind of a freak athlete and does appear to have like speed, athleticism, and technique in in being able to take people down. I just 
I kind of, I guess, filed Damian Maya in the sort of like old school jujitsu guy category where I didn't necessarily know that he was going to have those takedowns. So like, it seems like a fairly important wrinkle in his game to establish. And may, like I said, maybe it was just that we d- didn't know Ryan LaFlair has terrible takedown defense, but I guess you got to give credit for Damian Maya to be able to like time and time again, put this fight where he was obviously going to win it. Yeah, well, and he was getting a lot of those takedowns, like, kind of out in space, like, not just up against the fence, which is where you see the majority of takedowns happen these days. Uh, So, I guess, in that sense, like, a kind of non-traditional approach, and maybe it was just one that Ryan LaFleur didn't, wasn't really that worried about, didn't think that uh, Maya was going to be able to pull off. We heard him say beforehand that he wasn't really afraid to grapple with Demon Maya. And then he got out there and he admitted afterwards that uh, he kind of underestimated uh, Maya's ground game and uh, felt like he learned an important lesson in doing so there. I wonder, and obviously it seems like people were talking about it immediately afterwards, and Danny Downs and I were kind of going back and forth on it today in our trading shots column, but what what do you see, like what does this win mean for Maya? Because he does kind of run out of gas there in the fifth round. He mentioned that he'd been on a long layoff. He dealt with that staph infection, which uh, I hear you, man. That's a bitch. Uh, but and he'd kind of come back and realize that five rounds was going to be a lot to ask of himself. This is not the first time we've seen him kind of get tired uh, down the stretch in a fight. What do you think? Where? How far can Demi Maya go? And what should our expectations be of him at this point? Well, it started out really impressive, and I think if he would have caught something early on and been able to to get a stoppage, then you would say it was a really impressive performance for him. Uh, but like you said, like he got super tired toward the end, and I think this was one of those fights where once you got a round and a half or two rounds into it, you realized that you had kind of crossed over this threshold where I think we sort of all came to the to the realization that it was going to go the distance. And you know, when you're when your thing, as Damian Maya's thing is, is to be a really uh, talented and dangerous jujitsu player, like you spent the whole the whole fight on the ground and you were in control the whole time. I kind of feel like you should have got a stoppage at some point. Cause that's your thing. Uh, and he wasn't able to do that. And he did get super tired at the end. And I thought for a few horrifying moments in the fifth was going to lose just by refusing to stand up. Cause he was kind of, <laughs> yes. he kept, he was taking his sweet time and it was kind of taking longer and longer to get up. And big John McCarthy was kind of getting fed up with it. He ended up losing a point, I guess, right at the end of the fight. Uh, but he did make it through and he does get the win. It is a little bit hard to say where this leaves him though, just because he's won two fights in a row now at welterweight, but those two wins are over Ryan LaFlair, who, like we said, we're not totally sure. He seems like a guy who's on Damian Maya's level. And before that he beat Alexander Yakolev, uh, at an ultimate fighter Brazil three finale. Uh, so it's not like he's beaten top flight welterweights that, you know, the previous to that, his two losses were Rory McDonald and Jake Shields. And now, you know, prior to that, he'd been fighting guys like John Fitch and Rick story. So he was fighting top of the line welterweights. Now you've got this two win, these two wins over, uh, I guess you might call second tier guys or guys that haven't proven themselves all that much, uh, in the UFC. So I think that this probably earns him a fight against someone we've heard of, I guess, like someone, maybe someone in the, in the top 10 ish range, uh, you know, 10 or 12, something like that. I don't know where he was ranked before this. He's probably a top, top 10 guy, I guess. So like someone right around there, he would, that he would fight. But like you said, uh, he's getting up there in years a little bit. So 37, I don't know that I expect Damian Maia to go and make a run to the title, uh, in that division, but like this definitely makes him seem like a more interesting player than he was before. 
Yeah. And, you know, to your point about how you're, you feel like he should have been able to, to earn a stoppage in this one, uh, given how much he was dominating Ryan LaFleur on the mat, I think, and maybe this was a concern of his about getting tired or about wanting to make sure he was controlling rather than taking too many risks. The submission attempts you did see him going for, like uh, that, that arm triangle choke, are ones where it's fairly low risk. Like if you don't get it, you, you're not going to give up position or anything. Um, and so that did seem to be like a different part of his game than we've seen before. Because I don't know, I was thinking to myself earlier, like, man, when is the last time Demian Maya submitted somebody? Uh, it was Rick's story where he came out, you know, as a, as a welterweight. And that's when we were starting to think, hey, wait a minute. Maybe Demian Maya has rediscovered himself uh, by dropping 170 when he kind of choked the blood out of Rick's story's face. Uh, and that was awesome. But then I was like, okay, what was the ta- last time he submitted somebody before that? You know when it was? No. When he submitted Chael Sonnen at UFC 95. Ah, Chael Sonnen, always good for a submission. Well, and I don't know if you remember that one. That one actually does make me think about our point about takedowns. I I seem to recall that he had a pretty sweet throw uh, early on in that one. Got got Sonnen to the mat um, and kind of let Sonnen roll himself into a triangle choke trying to go from bottom to the top. And that's a risky move. Like, you know, that's even for a great jujitsu guy like Maya, giving up top position. Uh, in order to try and lock on a submission. And it worked uh, against Chael Sonnen, the, the famously triangle chokeable Chael Sonnen. Uh, but maybe it's the kind of thing that he doesn't really feel like doing anymore. Now maybe he feels like, he, I'll just hang out here and mount, um, punch the guy in the face a little bit, and see where we can get from there. I, I don't know. I mean, he talks about his ambition being to fight for the belt again. And you know how it works in the UFC, especially if you've already fought for the belt once. In order to convince them to give you another shot, you, you kind of got to do something worth worth noting there. And just hanging out and mount and then gassing out in the fifth round probably isn't that. Grinding out five-rounders ain't going to work for Damian Maya Baptista. He he should be a balls-to-the-wall, take-no-prisoners, tap-you-out-at-any-cost guy. You know what he needs is Chad Dundas in his corner right. to whisper this kind of stuff in his ear. Do you like the rounds. way I said that? Like, you just, that's easy as pie. Just go out and just tap him out, man. No big deal. You know what you should do here is uh, win, win. Win by submission. Go out there and win right now. Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And we will move on to round number two. Ben, the best wheel man in the business, is fighting in Bellator this weekend. What? Frankie Cars, baby. Maybe planning to pull off a heist at the Windstar World Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma? Are you fucking kidding me? How did I not know about this before today? That was my initial reaction to finding out that Francis Carmon is fighting at Bellator. Then I started to look a little bit more deeply into it, and I realized, yep, just Frankie Cars with a professional record of 22-10. and Thirty-two professional fights. It's gonna roll up into Bellator and fight some dude named Guillermo Vania, a guy who has never had a fight in a major MMA organization before, whose professional record is six and one. Huh. So I guess maybe that's how I didn't know about it. Okay. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Uh, lock up your jewelry in Thackerville, Oklahoma, because if Frankie Cars is there, the whole thing might just be a diversion. Uh, for some kind of grand jewel yeah. heist. Ocean's Eleven type shit uh-huh. happening in Thackerville. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of priceless jewelry to steal there. Well, Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, you mentioned uh, Ronda Rousey announcing her next fight and also announcing Misha Tate's next fight against Jessica I. And while uh, Misha Tate and Brian Caraway were hanging out there in Brazil talking to the media, both Misha Tate and Brian Caraway made remarks to the effect that they know, and the UFC knows, that Misha is the one to beat Ronda Rousey. 
Hmm. Now, you know, Misha, I like you, but I gotta give you an are you fucking kidding me on that? Because I don't know why they would necessarily know that when you're 0-2 against her. I mean, she, she, she bent your arm up like a twist tie one time. You know, you did make it out of the, the first round against her and, and gave her, I guess, a, a pretty spirited contest. But I don't know if the UFC can really say that they're looking at what happened in those first two fights and thinking Misha Tate is the one. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, speaking of 37-year-old fighters, Josh D. Koscheck, Wikipedia will not tell us what the D stands for, so we can only speculate. Daniel? That's, that's, that's your speculation? Dwight? You could have said anything right there. Dennis. Josh Koscheck lost his fifth consecutive Dwayne. to Eric Silva. Another first-round submission this coming less than a month after his first round or second-round submission lost to Jake Ellenberger. Now, it's the last fight on Josh Koscheck's contract. I know you called me a tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist. Actually, I want to bring that up again, but go ahead. Finish your talk. For suggesting that maybe Josh Koscheck might be thinking about finishing out his UFC deal and seeing what Bellator has to say. Or who knows? Maybe even hearing what World Series of Fighting has to say. Um, afterwards, he, he talked on the post-fight show to Heidi Andrel and... He was talking about his career on the past tense, Chad. He was saying, you know, it was a good career. He had good time. He's been here for almost a decade. You know, just shot, like I think his, his uh, UFC debut was in April of 2005. So let's basically say he's been in the UFC for a decade. Uh, and yet he wouldn't say that he was done. He would not say that. Uh, and so it makes me wonder, is this Josh Koscheck trying to leverage the UFC into giving him one of those sweetheart deals where either, you know, he picks up a paycheck to do nothing or he goes on TV for Fox Sports 1? Uh, or, you know, is Josh Koscheck really thinking about continuing on to fight here? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think he would be trying to leverage a sweetheart deal out of the UFC. From what I understand, Josh Koscheck was wise with his money. He has, he has enough money to get by. He owns a gym in Fresno. He seems like a guy... Uh, who who has other stuff on his plate, stuff that that he could do if he wanted to. I don't think that he's, uh, you know, looking for a uh, a cushy vice president of developmental operations job or whatever. Well, he did uh, mention that Fox Sports one commentating gig. Well, I mean, that probably would be attractive to almost anyone in the business who who are used to a certain amount of celebrity inside this industry and have the kind of ego to to you know, want, want to do stuff like that and probably would be decent on TV. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did something like that. Uh, but I think if he continues to fight, it'll just be because he feels like he's got unfinished business. I don't know if that would end up being in the UFC or if it would be in Bellator. I did want to bring up your conspiracy theory, though, just because it seemed like that particular conspiracy theory, which you were the first person to say it that, that I heard, was kind of running rampant on Twitter prior to the fight and, and, and afterward makes me wonder what you guys are hearing like a back back channel whispers i'm i'm calling bullshit on you i guess is no you I, just want me to cut to the chase and I, say I, I think there's little birdies chirping in your ear and you're trying to play mr 
like I called it, lady, you want to be able to look back after the fact and say, I told you so. No. So you're trying to pretend like you've got this theory, whereas you're getting some kind of deep throat type information out of the, the Fresno area. No. Nor, I, NorCal? Is I that have, NorCal? I have no, no verifiable intelligence on the matter. I'm just thinking, just kind of thinking out loud here, Chad. And honestly, uh, it was such bullshit. It would make more sense. If somebody was going to sign Josh Koscheck, it would probably make more sense for it to be World Series of Fighting, given what they have going on in their welterweight division. Like, they've just kind of accidentally stacked up a bunch of good names or, or you know, kind of old timer names with, with some name value, uh, that you could throw Josh Koscheck in there with. So, you know, that I think would probably be, more realistic, but I don't even know if that's super realistic. I think Josh Koscheck probably realizes that he's done, or at least he realizes he's done for now. He might be one of those dudes who hits 40, some stuff starts healing up, and he thinks, I don't know, man, I could still get in there and do some damage. Uh, who knows? But I do think that he seems savvy enough that it, I think he might dangle that prospect out there to the UFC, um, just to get what he wants to get, because I think he probably really does want to, uh, be able to show up on Fox Sports One and collect a paycheck just for for talking about this this crazy business he knows pretty well. And I think he probably realizes that the best way to do that is to make the UFC at least a little bit worried that hey, if you don't give me a job, I'll go to someone else who will give me a job. I mean, that's basically what Randy Couture said he did uh, when it comes to you know his involvement with with Spike and and Bellator and all those people. So uh, I don't know. It seems to me like maybe just a, a pretty savvy negotiating ploy. And maybe I just hope that's what it is because. You know, I won't say he looked terrible or anything here, but when I see him getting thumped upside his head by Eric Silva at age 37, that's when I start to to get a little bit worried there. And I feel like it's a strange feeling to have that toward Josh Koscheck, who everybody enjoyed hating for so right. many years. Um, but now it's like people aren't even enjoying seeing him lose anymore, which they used to absolutely fucking love. Yeah, maybe it's a savvy negotiating technique and they t until they tell you, fuck you, go get knocked out by Douglas Lima in Bellator. Uh, but I, yeah, I think this is a good avenue to discuss here. How are we going to remember Josh Koscheck? Because he is a guy who, uh, you know, was, uh, a bad guy really early on in the development of, uh, the, this sport. And, and, you know, just when we were getting into the idea of having real bad guys, like Josh Koscheck came along, uh, to, to have his feud with Chris Lieben coming out of the, out of, uh, the Ultimate Fighter season one. And kind of uh, was one of those guys that, like you said, people would tune in because they wanted to see him lose. Um, and, and then a guy who went on to have a really long and, and successful career in the UFC and, and fought for the title. And, you know, who knows? Might have been a guy who would, would have been one of the best welterweights in the world had George St. Pierre not just had that on lock for, for basically his entire career. So, like, how are we going to remember this guy? Like, in, in this sport, it's kind of uh, – you can't really – discuss whether or not he'd be a hall of famer since the hall of fame doesn't doesn't mean all that much doesn't even uh, exist really right so that's it's hard to kind of come up with a metric by which to discuss but like is he going to be a guy we think of five years from now or is he just going to kind of slip into the ether since he he kind of fell short against george st pierre you know i was thinking about this earlier while writing a column on of it i something tells me that josh koshek might history might be kinder to josh koshek than we think because i think that when people look back on it they're going to remember like the intensity of feeling that they had about certain fighters more than they'll remember exactly what those feelings were that they'll remember. Like he was a guy who seemed like he mattered. Like when he showed up on, uh, on TV, 
you paid attention, that kind of thing. And I think he still had that going for him here, especially on a card like this that didn't have a whole lot going for it. The fact, like, okay, Josh Koscik's going to come in and, and fight. All right, that's something, you know. And I think that uh, more and more maybe with the USC expanded schedule and we we see a bunch of names that we don't know and, and nobody really has a chance to even learn anything about them because there's a fight next weekend and, you know, there's just more guys being piled on top of each other. I think that we'll kind of remember that era of like, okay, Josh Koscheck was a guy who was a, a fixture in that division for a long time, was always kind of in that conversation, and people had powerful feelings about him, even if they weren't usually positive. Yeah, you know what I think is kind of a, a compliment to Josh Koscheck, or like I guess a testament to to his athleticism and, and what a good fighter was he was was that uh, that first in a, first season of the Ultimate Fighter ha- was stocked with guys who were going to be in the UFC anyway. You know what I mean, like. Uh, Chris Lieben was going to be in the UFC anyway. Diego Sanchez was going to be in the UFC anyway. Nate Quarry was probably going to be in the UFC anyway. I mean, a guy like Mike Swick. The, like These guys were all big-time players on the independent MMA scene and like guys who were undefeated. Like Diego Sanchez and Chris Lieben at the time were both undefeated and I believe the champions of smaller organizations. So like guys that, that basically already had their tickets punched to the UFC. I'm not sure that Josh Koscheck was the, one of those guys coming into this season because, you know, he had only had two or three professional MMA fights and I think by his own admission would tell you he was pretty much just a wrestler, uh, even back then. So to kind of to throw him into that, uh, kind of shark tank, I guess, of the Ultimate Fighter Season 1, and I think fighting at a weight class above his natural weight, where he ended up fighting in the UFC, for him to come out of that and be one of the guys who had one of the longest careers in the UFC and not, you know, kind of slip into the background like some of the guys like Bobby Southworth and uh, Alex Schonauer and some of the other kind of long shots from that season. Jason Thacker. Strange Jason Thacker, currently the mayor of Thackerville, Oklahoma. Uh... (laughs) For him to become one of the mainstays and not necessarily one of the afterthoughts, I think in and of itself is was kind of an accomplishment for him. Yeah, well, and I guess you know I was thinking about it when you when you start naming off those those guys from season one, and you think about you know who's still around um, and like who's still around in any sense that matters, and it feels like more and more as time goes by, the ones who are still around you wish weren't, uh, and that's kind of it's sad how kind of inevitable that is but i guess that's just the way this sport works like there's that line from the the press conference where josh koshik was saying that he told dana white it would be nice to fight someone his own age uh for a change and Dana white uh chirped that there aren't many of those around and there's a reason for that you know like i don't know it's one of these things too where everybody you know you you look back and i'm sure he's gonna look at this five fight losing streak i mean he hasn't won a fight since 2012 um Basically, you could also make an argument that he leaves AKA has kind of a, a bad split with them and then just starts losing fights over and over again. So that, that probably has something to do with it. But I'm sure he looks back on that and a part of him wants to be like, that seems like a shitty way to end. Everybody goes through that thing where they don't want to end that way. And yet almost everybody does end that way because that's just the way this sport works. I mean, I wonder if it's one of those things where will, will fighters themselves get smarter about that or at least, um, recognize the the trap the emotional trap that that is the more we see people do it the more it becomes like a commonplace thing like will the the longer history of mma provide them like this example and be like yeah i don't want to end like that but neither did matt hughes neither did these other guys and that's just kind of how it goes i doubt it man you're like that the thing that you're describing 
has, is as old as the hills, right? Like, yeah, but I mean, I can see, like, it's old in, as the hills in, like, other combat sports, but MMA is still being relatively young. Like, I think there are a lot of mistakes or a lot of just, like, patterns that guys fell into, in, at least in part because they didn't have anyone who came before them to show them that this is how it goes and here are the ways you can manage it. Here's how it could be better. Here's how it could be worse. I think that a lot of MMA fighters found out a lot of stuff for themselves because that was the only show, choice that they had. Yeah, maybe. I think you're talking about an athlete problem, though, like okay. more than like an MMA problem. So I, I think that that kind of stuff will continue to happen for the rest of time. But that's probably going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. been a bevy of activity in the UFC women's bantamweight division this past weekend. Uh, the UFC announced that Ronda Rousey's next title defense will indeed be against Betch Cohia. We went back and forth, I think, a little bit between Cohia and Jessica I. Uh, they, they finally settled on, on Cohia and, and bumped Jessica I over to the, uh, to the secondary star in the women's 135-pound division, she's going to fight Misha Tate. We also saw, we talked a little bit earlier about Amanda Nunez taking on Shayna Baszler, but uh, I thought maybe we could say a few words about Shayna Baszler and, and, and you know, her status in this sport during this round. Uh, let's start with Rousey against Betchko here, though. Um, I kind of feel like if you weren't going to get the Ronda Rousey Cyborg Justino fight right away, which I guess for various reasons seems like we weren't, uh, that Betchko here was the right opponent, the best you were going to do under the immediate circumstances. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I think that uh, when you consider that she, Ronda Rousey probably has no great competition in the current women's 135-pound class, so almost any fight that you can make for her right now in that division going to be a bit of a squash match. So why not make the squash match? That's at least fun. Yeah. The one where there's some personal animosity there. And I'll tell you, you know, when I heard about this fight and just thinking of it matchup wise, it's kind of like, uh, okay, I feel like I already know how this one is going to go. But then watching the ad that the UFC keeps running again and again, where Ronda Rousey talks about how, uh, Betch Cohea has fucked with her family. And if you fuck with her family, then you're fucked. I assume that's what she's saying because there's a lot of bleeps that get thrown in there. So, uh, it's kind of tough to follow. That's when I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. No, when she says that she doesn't want to just beat her, she wants to make sure she leaves the arena that night embarrassed, which you know Ronda Rousey can do to you, Yeah. Uh, then now I feel like, okay, I'm into it. I, I want to see if you can actually do that and exactly how Ronda Rousey will approach a fight where she wants, she really wants to embarrass the other person, not like actually just beat somebody who she super likes. Hold and up. She wasn't trying to embarrass those people before. Oh, <laughs> not man. all of them. Not all of them. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so like, you know, as you kind of feel like a, like some kind of pro wrestling mark for getting get too into the rivalry aspect of any fight, but that's one where, you know, I believe it enough. And I'm interested enough to see Ronda Rousey do it that it's kind of like a Babe Ruth calling a shot kind of thing where you're like, okay, so I want to see to what extent like you can actually follow through on this promise because uh, I kind of think you can and I kind of think that maybe it would be sweet to watch. 
Yeah, I think you got to give props to Betch Cohia too. Like we've talked about that before. We we've kind of given her her due, but might as well go over it one more time here. Like she kind of made this happen, like uh, on her of her own volition. Like she was not a person that you would expect to to be a, a contender for Ronda Rousey. Like I don't even think we even knew who she was before she debuted uh, right at the end of 2013. But you know, she's kind of made it her mission to get in. Ronda Rousey's face in a way that not everyone in that division is willing to get into her face. Uh, she obviously beat the two teammates, Jessamyn Duke and Shayna Baszler, uh, in back-to-back appearances. And aside from that, her only UFC win is over friend of the podcast, Julie Kedsey. That was her debut back in, in the end of 2013. And it's questionable whether she deserved to win that decision. Yeah, that was a split decision. So you got the one split decision and then, you know, two wins over people who are not necessarily knocking the lights out in the women's bantamweight division. And yet she's been able to position herself as, I think, the fun opponent for Ronda Rousey. So uh, I'm, I do agree with you that if Ronda Rousey goes out there with the intent of embarrassing Betchko here, that she's fully capable of doing that. And that either ends really fast all, uh, you know, her last fight against Kat Zingano or gets really ugly and maybe kind of uncomfortable for everyone. Um, but we'll have to wait and see, man. You know, and that's that's what I think is going to be fun about this. Betchko, he is certainly going to talk a good game. Uh, as Jim Ross would say, bring a lot of excitement to the contest. But prior to the bell, uh, after that, you know, I don't know that we're going to get a lot. But who would you get a lot with? against ronda rousey right now not cat zingano it turned out so right well like if we're spinning our wheels we might as well spin our wheels the funnest way possible right uh yeah i mean i guess it's a it's a short-term solution in that sense um does it make you sad to think that because she will likely get trounced by ronda rousey uh there's a very low probability of seeing her overly sexualized dance that i know you're a big fan of even though you hypocritically criticize hen and morale for almost the exact same thing well, I don't know if you caught this this last weekend on Twitter. I've taken ownership of that. I now appreciate <laughs> the Hen and Burrell overly sexualized dance. I've turned a negative into a positive. Wow. I've empowered myself. You know what you ben. are? You're a flip-flopper. You're a goddamn flip-flopper is what you are. You know, I was interested. Uh, I follow on Twitter uh, female fighter Lauren Murphy, uh, who is a lot of fun on Twitter. She seemed especially incensed by the Ronda Rousey Betch Cohea fight. Uh, reading here from her tweets, I can't believe Ronda Betch. Betch is not good, nor fought anyone in top 10. She's a joke, a fraud, only impressive when she shakes her ass. She has zero punching power or head movement, can't wrestle to save her life, and will be submitted by half the division, much less Ronda. Wow. Yeah. Takedown. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure that that is inaccurate in terms of its assessment of her fighting ability. We don't really know. She's undefeated in the UFC so far, but like we said a minute ago, hasn't necessarily fought anybody that. Okay. Let's talk. I think this is probably a good segue. Let's talk about who she did beat uh, recently to get there. She like you mentioned before uh, her run in the UFC. And I guess the most impressive win so far was the, her stoppage of Shayna Baszler. It looked at first on that one, like Baszler might just be too good of a grappler for her. And Baszler kind of, Tired out, and then Betch beat her up a little bit, and so to where Baszler couldn't really uh, do much about it. Um, and then you see Shayna Baszler uh, Saturday night get get just thumped on by Amanda Nunes and kicked in her knee and go down. And it she seemed to me like one of those fighters where if you've been following especially the women's side of the sport for a while, you know Shayna Baszler. She's she's been around. Uh, I don't know if you want to use the word pioneer. Some people seem to think that that's thrown around too loosely these days. But she's she was down 
for a long time with, yeah. with women's MMA yes. uh, and was a great character in the scene. And it seemed like one of those fighters where you wish like, or you, or you feel like they probably wish like, Oh, if I could have come along a little later uh, when there was more attention and actually some money as opposed to absolutely zero money in it. Um, you kind of feel bad for a little bit because, you know, to wait all that time to get the opportunity to fight somewhere like the UFC. And then by the time it comes around for her, seems like the game has passed her by a little bit just through like the natural aging process. Yeah, and Shayna Baszler was a was a person that everyone kind of liked or like was a character that that like uh you know was kind of universally appreciated in the sport. Um she came out of that kind of Josh Barnett clique of fighters. I think she's been around since 2002 or 2003 uh and was a person that that like everyone liked and and wanted the best for. So it's hard to see her now at 34 years old, be one and four in her last five fights and super hard to watch her lose this fight to Amanda Nunez in the fashion that she did, uh, you know, with a leg kick injury is always, uh, kind of ugly and disheartening to see when it happens to, uh, let's say someone of your own age. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And that is the thing. Like she just kind of looked a little bit like maybe uh wear and tear from over the years is catching up with her. Uh, and you know, that's gotta be a bummer that, to, to have all that time where you feel like you're you're doing well in the sport and you're helping to kind of push it forward in the very limited capacity in which you are allowed to uh, because the, the top tier of the sport doesn't even really recognize you. And then by the time it does, you show up just long enough to, to lose a bunch of fights and have a bunch of assholes on the Internet say that you suck. I, that's That's fairly heartbreaking to me. Yeah, I don't know who would say that. Assholes on the Internet, I guess. There you go. I guess. Uh, you want to say anything about Misha Tate, Jessica I? If Misha, if Misha Tate goes out and beats Jessica I, I mean, I guess they're saying it's a number one contender fight, sort of. I guess you might as well say that, right? I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know that I necessarily would think Misha Tate's standing would be improved a lot by beating Jessica I, but maybe. I, I still think, you know, you're going to end up with the same problem. The UFC is going to still keep looking at it and saying, hey – uh, if we don't have anybody who seems like they can give Ronda Rousey a super competitive fight right now, then we at least just put together the, the fight that we think people can talk up enough and sell. And so Misha Tate might have a case there. For I mean, again, for her to make the claim that like the UFC even thinks she'll be the one to beat Ronda Rousey, we've really seen nothing to, to support that uh, so far. But they do probably look at her and think like, well, she's somebody that if we if we find ourselves in a pinch, we can probably sell a third uh, Rousey Tate fight. Yeah. I admire that though, from a just saying stuff perspective. <laughs> do you? Yeah. Which leads me to, to the segue that we might as well do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, uh, somebody linked to this video on Reddit MMA, which you know that I enjoy a great deal. Uh, and it was a, the pre-fight press conference from UFC 124, which is the second time that George St. Pierre fought Josh Koscheck and George St. Pierre, almost eerily prescient in his take on what lay ahead for Josh Koscheck. I'll quote, if I win against Josh Koscheck when I beat him, it's going to be the end of it. Oh, I like this. It's George going to Saint be Pierre two times that I beat him. And if he has the same mentality as me, Josh Koscheck going to have to reconsider the career because if he wants to be the best, now he's going to lose two time to me. It's going to take a long time before he go to the title and maybe never again. Bravo. And Not that only- is, Exactly how it played out. George St. Pierre broke Josh Koscheck's damn eye, beat him uh, via decision. Uh, Josh Koscheck never again did fight for the title. Long time, him trying to battle his way back up the ladder, and it never happened. Wow. I'm just saying, 
maybe George St. Pierre did get abducted by aliens and they showed him the goddamn future, Chad. More evidence that he actually is from the future. Yeah. Just saying. Well, Ben, I don't know how close of attention you paid to the commercials during UFC Fight Night 62. As little as possible. Aside from writing down the addresses from all those pervy dating sites that I know you like. But FarmersOnly.com, they got a good jingle, man. Come on. <laughs> the, the ads for the next fight night were in heavy rotation, and there's a weird wrinkle now in these Fox Sports commercials where they don't mention some of the fighters' first names. So for the co-main event of the UFC Fight Night 63, they just refer to the heavy-handed Mas Vidal and the devastating Iaquinta. So okay. I'm just saying, first of all, I love the idea of referring to Al Iaquinta and uh, Jorge Masvidal just by their first names, like they're fucking Madonna or, or Prince. And secondly, I couldn't be more into the idea of calling Al Iaquinta the devastating Iaquinta like he's a goddamn traveling magician from the late 1800s. Come see the devastating Iaquinta perform his world-renowned disappearing lady trick live on stage. Thrills, chills, and spectacle. You won't want to miss it. I'm just saying, heretofore, there is no Al Iaquinta. There is only the devastating Iaquinta. Uh, can I say two things here? One, your old-timey radio voice is maybe the only voice that you do that I really enjoy. It's like but I was born... Several decades too late. Yeah, no. Uh, the other thing is, okay, before weren't we talking about Raging Al as like the the drink like that somebody needs to make in a yes. bar on Long Island? <laughs> so we got the Raging Al, and now we got the Devastating the Devastating Iaquinta, which, you know, maybe sounds like an old-time magician or like a awful stomach ailment that you'd get in like Poland or something. <laughs> uh, man, that guy is really he, – he, what is it about his name that just lends itself to – Awesome, awesome bullshit. There's just nothing not to like there, man. Just too much to like and nothing not to like. What happens when Raging Al squares off against the devastating Ayakinta? Oh, who knows? Anything. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to look ahead to the thunderous UFC schedule uh, coming in April and, and beyond. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. So how bad do you black out if you go to uh, Cubby Swanson's Bar and Grill and, and uh, order up a tray full of devastating Iaquintas? And, you know, some people won't take them, so you end up having to take two or three. Yeah. yeah. Black, up, black out and wake up in Chechnya doing a traditional folk dance at a local restaurant.